0: How may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O oh Lord, my strength and my Redeemer? Amen. Well- we are celebrating the Feast of All Saints this weekend. Um, this, this, it does begin technically tonight, but we're celebrating it today. And we will continue, in, in at least in some sense, that celebration for the next um, seven days. It is an eight-day feast. So next week, uh, we will still be looking at All Saints, um, even though we'll be looking at other, other readings. And this really is one of the most important feasts of the church. You know that because it does have a full octave. But it's also a very important feast day in the life of our parish because 44 years ago this weekend, All Saints Anglican Church was founded. And and that's really why we were named All Saints was because it happened on All Saints uh, weekend. Our parish was one of the first new parishes in Texas, if not the nation, to be planted by what we now call the Continuing Anglican Movement And so this movement was founded in 1977 to preserve the classical prayer book, to preserve Catholic orders, and a more high church approach to the sacraments and worship. And while we are no longer part of the Anglican continuum, we we are now uh, part of the Church of Nigeria, um, which happened before I got here. Nevertheless, I am very thankful for those roots because they're a big part of why we are who we are to this day. All Saints Day is a good time to consider the rootedness of the church. It's a good time to remember the continuity within the faith and the fellowship of Christians that cuts across time, place, and culture. We call this continuity the communion of saints, and we confess this continuity in the Apostles' Creed. But let's give a bit of background on the day itself all Saints Day is one of the later feasts to make its way onto the church calendar. It first shows up as a local feast in, in Rome around the 5th century, um, and that, that occurs with the dedication of a particular chapel in the, in the greater complex of St. Peter's Basilica. So, already by this time, it was very common for different local or even regional churches to honor and remember the martyrs and confessors from within their area. Uh, martyrs are people that died for the faith, confessors are people that have suffered but not not necessarily died, and and they would typically honor these folks on the anniversary of their death. That's how the custom of celebrating Saints' Days first comes about. It starts really locally celebrating those folks in your city, in your area, that that were martyred or or were confessors. Now, this new particular chapel in Rome was dedicated to Christ, the Blessed Virgin Mary, the apostles, martyrs, and all the saints. It's basically dedicated to everybody. (laughs) And so because it was dedicated to everybody, um, the the anniversary of that dedication came to be a catch-all feast day for saints who didn't have their own particular day. Eventually, over uh, several centuries after that, the feast is eventually moved to November 1st, and it's celebrated by the whole church as the Western calendar really does get standardized rather than just kind of being a local affair. And All Saints Day comes to be seen as a day when we remember all those who have died in Christ and are now before his throne in heaven. Additionally, All Saints Day is a time when we are reminded to follow the examples of those who have gone before us by being faithful to the Lord, striving to live lives of holiness, and striving to look forward to our own eternal rest in the presence of our Savior. As is often the case, the colic for the day summarizes these goals goals quite perfectly. This is on page 252 in your prayer book. I'm sorry, 256. O almighty God, who hast knit together thine elect in one communion and fellowship in the mystical body of thy Son, Christ our Lord, grant us grace so to follow thy blessed saints in all virtuous and godly living, that we may come to those unspeakable joys which thou hast prepared for those who unfeignedly love thee, Through the same thy Son, Christ our Lord. Amen. So we see two, two main parts of this celebration. The one communion and fellowship of saints across time and space that we have in Christ. And then the exhortation to follow the saints' example in all virtuous and godly living. When we look at our epistle reading from Revelation and our gospel reading from the Sermon on the Mount, we see these two emphases playing out. So let's first look at Revelation 7, beginning at verse 2. Revelation 7 to uh, page 256 in the prayer book. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees, until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then the text goes on to name 12,000 from each tribe of Israel. It's a bit odd of a a tribes list. Uh, We're not going to get into detail on that today. Um, But I'm going to go ahead and follow the prayer book's example and skip down to verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing round about the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen So here we have two groups of people. We have the 144,000 servants of God who have been sealed on their foreheads. And then we have the uncountable multitude called out of every nation, tribe, and tongue. Now, most every scholar agrees that the 144,000 is a symbolic number that's made up of 12 times 12 times 1,000, with 12 being the number that represents God's people because we have 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles, etc., right? And a thousand being a number that represents just this great multitude. So the number 144,000 isn't a fixed number of people, but rather it's a representative of a larger group of God's people. This is just God's people here. Now, not all scholars agree as to whether the 144,000 are literally from among ethnic Israel, that is, they're Jewish Christians or whether Israel here and the 12 tribes is a symbol for all of God's people. Scholars don't really agree on that. Um, Some say one way, some says the other one. But everybody does agree that the second group shows the vast multitude of saints in heaven, basically everyone that is going to be before the throne. And this, this vast group from every tribe, nation, and tongue can be seen as a reverse of the curse of Babel from Genesis 11. You remember back in Genesis 11, it was just one people, one nation, tribe, one tongue, and they aspired to usurp God's authority. And so God confuses the languages, scatters them, and then we have a bunch of tribes, nations, and tongues. Well, healing that curse isn't now we only have back to one tribe, one nation, one tongue. No, it's redeeming a vast uncountable multitude from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Interesting reversal for the curse. The point, though, here is that whether we're seeing the saints from Israel and then the the saints from the nation, or whether our passage is giving us two perspectives from one big group of all the saints, we still have here a great vision of the church triumphant. So notice that the great multitude is in white robes that have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. This speaks to their purity, but also to the source of their purity. They have been cleansed from their sins. Those robes are dazzling white. They are indeed saints. They are holy ones. That's what saint means. And it's by the blood of the lamb, the blood of Jesus, that they have been cleansed. The source of their holiness is the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ when he became sin for them and he became sin for us. Notice also that they have been saved from the great tribulation. Again, the exact meaning of this phrase is something about which scholars and theologians disagree. Some people see this as one particular time of tribulation, one particular time of suffering and persecution, perhaps at the end of the age. Other people see this as kind of a catch-all for just the way that the world always has and always will be opposed to the church. They see it as a tribulation based on the fact that we are not of this world and the world's systems. And therefore, we will be actively opposed by the world, the flesh, and the devil. Either way, the sufferings of these folks, of these saints, are in the past. Now that they're before the throne, they're at rest. And then we are encouraged to have to look forward to that same kind of rest. We can look forward to that same reward. Similarly, the 144,000 are all marked by the Lord, and therefore they're not subject to the judgment to come. The angel is holding back the judgment until they have been marked. They've been sealed and set apart as belonging to Jesus. And this is quite literally what it means to be holy. This is what it means to be a saint, to be set apart for Jesus as belonging to God. And incidentally, if you have attended a baptism here at All Saints or a similar liturgical parish, you may recall that the baptized are signed with the cross on their foreheads with the oil. And this is a symbol of the Holy Spirit marking that newly baptized person as belonging to Jesus, just like the 144,000 are marked. It's also important to note that the events here in chapter 11 of Revelation with the 144,000, with the great multitude, these don't happen in a vacuum. We don't just grab chapter 7 and it has no context, right? It points forward to what we see in chapter 8 Where the prayers of the saints are rising as incense before the Lord. There's still prayer going on. There's prayer and worship. It's still going on. That's why we light the censer, by the way, is a reminder of that. But it also points back to chapter 6. What happens in chapter 6? Well, we see the souls of the martyrs, those who have been slain on account of the Lord. They're under the altar, which means they're in paradise it means they're in they're 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 in bliss but yet they are still crying out to God in expectation how long they long for the lord to set things to rights they long for god's justice so they are at rest but they're also eagerly awaiting the new heavens and the new earth they long for their final and bodily resurrection when God fully establishes his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. This is important to remember as we celebrate all saints. The church triumphant is still in expectation of the final resurrection. As N.T. Wright says in his masterful work, Surprised by Hope, and a whole bunch of other things, this is a favorite of his, heaven is important, but it's not the end of the world. (laughs) All Saints Day is not about escaping into heaven. It's about anticipating something even better, anticipating the resurrection. Now, finally, there's also a challenge for those of us who are still fighting the good fight on this side of eternity. All Saints Day issues a challenge for the church militant. So let's look at, it. Let's look at Matthew 5, beginning at verse 1, our gospel reading, uh, page 257 in the prayer book. So as I said earlier, the word saint means holy ones or someone who has been set apart. And it's true that on our feast day and really in wider church tradition, when we use the term saint, we primarily are are talking about those who have gone to heaven before us. That's usually what we mean when we say saint. But the scriptures usually doesn't use the term that way. When the scriptures talks about saints, it's usually talking about God's people in general and really primarily about those who are still on earth. That is, you and I, in a sense, are also properly called saints by virtue of God setting us apart to be his by grace through faith in Jesus Christ as signified in our baptism. And the Beatitudes from our gospel show us what this holiness looks like, what it looks like to be set apart for God. Now, sometimes folks will look at the Beatitudes as prescriptive. They, they, they see the Beatitudes like a new set of commands or, or for the Christian, almost like a new version of the Ten Commandments. And it's true that the Beatitudes do give us a picture of what Christian virtue looks like. But more importantly, the Beatitudes are descriptive. They tell us what blessedness looks like. And implied in this description is a contrast with the world. So the world does not value mourning, especially mourning for sin. But Jesus does. And he promises that on the other side of such mourning is comfort. That promise, by the way, is what makes this gospel, not law. You know, there is a promise here. The world often does not value purity or Righteousness. It often exalts perversion and wickedness. But Jesus tells us he will give righteousness to those who hunger after it. And those who are purified by God, who are pure in heart, will see God. And we really don't have time to look into detail at each of these uh, description of blessedness in our passage. Um, Go back and listen to Father Jerry's message last year for that. But I do want us to take note especially of the final beatitude. Blessed are you when you are spoken against, reviled, and even persecuted for Jesus' sake. Why? Well, because this is what they did to those saints in heaven. In other words, when you suffer for Jesus' sake, you're following in the footsteps of the folks that we read about in Revelation chapter 7. And and there is hostility towards the church, Um, incidentally, kind of, this is, this is very much an aside. I, I forgot to mention this in the announcements. Um, Tuesday, we're having, um, we're, we're having voting on amendments to the Texas Constitution. One of which is that the, the proposed amendment is that the state can't shut down a church. Um, think about that. You know, it's, it's, it's I, I know the way I'm voting. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> But here's what we see when we look at that last beatitude. When we look at at following in the footsteps of those in Revelation 7. We see that our fellowship with those in heaven is based on a mutual union with Christ. We share the same eternal blessings as well as the same temporal struggles. They have received their reward and rest and we're looking forward to to that. And just as they kept their eyes on Christ, so too must we. It's only when we are in Christ and looking to him that we can follow in the footsteps of those heroes that have gone before us. Reading all those wonderful lives of the saints don't do you anything if you're not keeping your eyes on Jesus. It's only in Christ that we will inherit our share in that great multitude before his throne. And it's only in Christ that we can live up to our calling to sainthood. And we say this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost.